Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this Friday edition of Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you are with us as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah. Today, we're going to get into some territory that can be, um, how do I say it? It can cause us some internal turmoil when we think about God's relationship to disasters, wars, other things that uh, that we tend to put in the category of evil, right? So we're going to look at that as God tells us himself what his relationship to those things is. But first, we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves today's a good day, not just because, not just because it's Friday. Every day. Today is a day that Jesus Christ has made, and therefore it is a good day. So, let us declare together the goodness of this day. You ready? Say it with me. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We are going to rejoice today. It's a good day. All right, so we're continuing on in Isaiah. Um, I think I mentioned yesterday that we were going to come back and look at uh, the Spirit in uh, chapter 44, and I think I'm just going to move on past that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I, I want to just keep going, and uh, we'll, we'll have more opportunity to talk about that. Number two, I do have to end on time today, maybe a little early, because uh, as you can see, I've got my, my big boy shirt on. I've got a meeting <laughs> I need to run to this morning, so uh, we're going to move on through 44. But I want to I wanna get through this because it's uh, important for the flow of Isaiah and for our understanding of God and war, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, that kind of stuff. So again, let me remind you, put yourself back in the Jew in exile or maybe back in Jerusalem a few hundred years after the fall of Jerusalem, maybe a few decades after the fall of Jerusalem. But anyway, you're in exile and you are now reading Isaiah knowing that Isaiah, who lived 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem in 586, predicted all of these things that have happened, as well as things that are going to happen in the future. So that's kind of the context. Let's take a look. God says, remember these things, O Jacob. What things? Well, he's been telling him that idols are worthless. Idols can do nothing. Idols are nothing. They're lies. They are made by men. And that he, God, is going to bring destruction on Jerusalem. Then he's going to bring deliverance. And God is the one who does this. And God has chosen Israel. And he will take care of Israel. Remember these things, so Jacob, he says. And Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Servant here is slave, right? Israel, you're my slave, but this is not merely a master-slave relationship. God cares for Israel deeply, right? He cares. It's a, it's a privilege to be this kind of servant with Yahweh, at least for Jacob, at least for Israel. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, your sins like a heavy mist, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. These are past tense verbs in the Hebrew, but they're 
they're so certain he can speak of them, uh, though he hasn't done it yet. He can speak of it as though it's a it's a done deal. He's gonna wipe out their sins. Their transgressions, their sins are like a cloud, like a mist. God can just shoo them away. He says, return to me. I've redeemed you. Return to me. We've seen this over and over again in Isaiah, haven't we? Judgment declared, sovereignty declared, his anger declared, and yet there's always a remnant. There's always the hope, forgiveness, and the appeal for Israel to to believe in him, to trust in him. Remember, he has rebuked them time and time again for their unbelief, for their idolatry. But he always comes back to this appeal to trust him. There is forgiveness for them if they will trust. And that's true of every human being even today. If you happen to have stumbled onto this broadcast and you're not a Christian and you know the weight and guilt of your sin, your conscience is heavy on you for what you have done, the Lord Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. I will forgive you. I will transform your life. I will give you the hope of eternal life in paradise. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's no sin that you've committed that is beyond his forgiveness. If you will turn to him and call out to him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. Our God is a gracious, kind God. He says, shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. This forgiveness that he brings, this restoration, it is a cause for joy in the heavens and on the earth. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Bring forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and in Israel he shows forth his glory. There is coming a redemption of Israel that is going to transform the cosmos. You remember when, when in uh, Romans 8, when Paul talks about all of creation groaning, that, that nature itself, what we call nature, has been subjected to futility, worthlessness, meaninglessness. It, it tries to work, but it can't. And it says, Paul says, uh, nature didn't do that on its own. Someone else subjected it to futility. Well, in the context there, that's got to be God, right? God brought curse to the natural order because of mankind's sin. Thorns and thistles and all the things that make labor hard, that's a result of God's judging the world, the, the, the physical world, uh, for Adam's sin. And Paul says, all of creation is groaning, longing to be freed from that curse so that it can thrive and flourish like never before. And he says, what creation is waiting for is the sons of men to be revealed, the redemption of the bodies of believers. All of creation is looking forward to when God relieves it of the curse, and all of us, all believers, will have re regenerated bodies that are fit for a glorified world. That's where this is all heading. I think that's kind of what, that's the kind of thing that Isaiah is speaking of here. I think probably 
Paul had this passage and others like it in mind as he's describing that. Which tells us that this uh, redemption for Jacob and Israel is not geopolitical Israel, it's not ethnic Israel. As Paul goes on to say in Romans, it's all believers. We Christians, those who are, are children of Abraham by faith, we are the recipient, we are the true Israel. Uh, and one day the mountains are going to break forth in joy and all the trees of the forest are going to sing because the full redemption has come. But this message in their time is, uh, is for the Jews in the, before the coming of Christ. So let's get back to the text. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, I took you, Jacob, in your mother's womb. Side note, life begins in the womb. God's forming of life is in the womb. That's the imagery used here. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. God does this. He's the creator of everything. Now, what we always have to be careful of is to think, okay, God created the world and then he set it in motion and he's not directly involved in the events of humanity, for instance. Right? It's so easy to slip into a a deistic mentality. Even, even those of us who say, no, 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 God's in control, God, God's sovereign over everything. When it comes to evil things, things we don't like, things that bring devastation to people, it's easy for us to step back and say, well, God really didn't have anything to do with that. Well, as we'll see, God takes credit for what we call disasters and wars. He made everything and he sustains everything. And he is continuing to work out his plan in everything. That's what he's saying. I formed you. You can trust me. I'm, I'm your redeemer, Jacob. I formed you in the womb. I gave you life. You, just like you, individual, whoever's listening to me, you did not decide to be born, right? You had nothing to do with it. Somebody else decided that you would be born. I mean, your mother and your father came together physically and sexually to, to conceive you. God is ultimately the one who decided that you would be born. He formed you in the womb. And that's what he's saying about Jacob. He makes everything. He stretches out the heavens. He spreads out the earth. God is sovereign. He is the, the creator and maker of all things. And he is the determiner of history. Look, he causes the omens of boasters to fail. Those who boast in reading the stars and the tea leaves and the horoscopes, etc. Their predictions are not going to come to pass because God's going to thwart them and prove they know nothing. He makes fools out of diviners. He causes wise men to draw back and turns their knowledge into foolishness. Nobody knows the future except God. And people who go around thinking they can predict what's going to happen, God says, oh yeah? <laughs> Let me show you who's in charge here. Confirming the word of his servant. 
probably Isaiah, prophets that he's talking about, performing the purpose of his messengers. So who can predict the future? Well, God and those whom God gives the, the vision to, right? It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. So if you're a Jew living in exile, God is reminding you, yep, you are in a foreign land. You know that Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. The great city of David has been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. But I'm telling you, the one who controls history, that's me, the one who makes a mockery of uh, the diviners and the, the, the oracles, that kind of thing, I, I, I mock them. I've given my truth to my prophets and through them, I'm telling you, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Trust me. It is I, he says, who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. I will make your rivers dry. Appealing back to the Exodus. Again, he dries up the sea so that his people can walk through it. He removes obstacles. He does what he's going to do. And he can do miraculous things to bring about his, his will, right? So those are very broad statements. Now he's going to get very, very specific. He's going to talk about the calling of a Persian king named Cyrus, who, depending on where you are, if you're a Jew in this uh, post-Jerusalem fall period, that's a weird way to say it, if you, are, if you are a Jew living in exile after Jerusalem has been destroyed, maybe you're in Babylon or something, you don't know who Cyrus is. You don't know that the Persian kingdom is, is going to grow and become a world power. But God does. And not only does God know it, but he's the one who's going to make it happen. As God describes King Cyrus of Persia, he's going to use terminology that sounds a lot like what he has said and what he will say later on in Isaiah about his servant, the Messiah. Interesting. There are some parallels between what he says about Cyrus and what he's going to say about Jesus. Now, we're not to equate them, of course, but the point is, as history flows on for these Jews, and they see what God said about Cyrus, his servant, even is going to call him his shepherd here, we'll see in the text in a moment, and everything that God said would happen regarding Cyrus came true, that is to bolster their faith and hope that the ultimate servant will come someday. And everything that he says about that servant will also be true. And we look back in hindsight and say, whoa, God is amazing. And he is in control of all of history. And he does what he says he will do. And so the promises that he's made about the servant, they will come true. So when it says in Isaiah 9 that the government will be put on Jesus' shoulders and there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom and no end to the increase of peace. We need to trust that even though we look out at the world today and say, uh, I don't know if I can see it. <laughs> we walk by faith, 
not just for eternal life, but for the reign and rule of the Messiah who is putting down all of his enemies. We know that's going to happen because what God said about Cyrus before anybody had ever heard of Cyrus came true. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Interesting, this pagan king, God says, he's my shepherd. I'm using him to lead my flock, so to speak. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Question is, who's the he here, right? I think it's Cyrus. Cyrus is going to say, yep, I'm going to allow Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt. All because God desires Cyrus to do it. Now, I'm not going to take the time today, but one of the things we have to always understand when it comes to God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Right? Everybody wants to talk about free will and those who understand that God is sovereign over everything, like I'm trying to show you from this text. We sometimes, we, we, we become better theologians than God. We, we, we only read half the Bible. The same Bible that says God is absolutely sovereign over everything, not even a bird falls from the tree and to the ground apart from the will of God. Jesus said that. That same Bible that teaches that says man does what man wants to do. And we're not very good. We, we try to reconcile them as though those things are enemies. The Bible treats it as though they're both perfectly in harmony. God is sovereign. Man is free. And God always gets what he wants through the free agency of man. And we try to figure out how that looks, and it, it, we just can't figure it out. Here, look, he says, Cyrus is going to perform my desire, God's desire to have Jerusalem rebuilt. That's God is the one who's doing that. And Cyrus also wants Jerusalem to rebuilt, be rebuilt. That's how the Bible presents it. God is sovereign over everything, and man does what man wants to do. And somehow God's desires and man's desires work out God's plan perfectly. Don't try to figure it out beyond that. Just believe it. Both are, both are true. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. <laughs> See that? He's calling Cyrus, this pagan king, his anointed, his, his um, uh, small M Messiah, whom I have taken by the right hand. Do you remember the earlier prediction that he would take the servant by the right hand, take him by hand and lead him? He's taking Cyrus that way too. Taking him by the right hand to subdue nations before him. Cyrus is going to conquer the nations because God has taken him by the hand and leading him to do it. To loose the loins of kings. <laughs> it's a pretty graphic way to say it. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. Again, this is God to Cyrus. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. Cyrus, you are going to have a pretty easy road at conquering the nations because I am going to make those rough paths smooth and I'm going to cut down doors for you that you can just walk through them. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. 
Again, similar terminology, God calling you by name. Does this mean that Cyrus knew and honored God? No, we're going to see that in a minute. He didn't. But he should have. Cyrus, Cyrus should have known, should have seen that the reason he was successful was because God was doing it. God's going to give him great wealth, free and easy conquering of these nations. God's calling him by name, but Cyrus isn't going to get it. He's not going to get the source of his victory here. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you, Cyrus, by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Now, we, we, we wonder, how can this work? How can Cyrus do this? Well, remember, the point of this is for Israel. So God's calling Cyrus, making it perfectly obvious that God is with him, and yet Cyrus doesn't know God, but all of this is intended for Israel, not Cyrus, to remind Israel, to instill faith in Israel. God has called this king and he is the one that's going to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. This is all God's doing. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, Cyrus, though you have not known me. Why? That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these. Now think about the context here. God has just said he is going to bring Cyrus to conquer nations, to take their wealth, to free the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. He is, and we know how this plays out. Cyrus, the Persian kingdom, or it, it becomes the, the greatest kingdom up to that point. Now, Alexander the Great is going to come at later on and have an even bigger worldwide kingdom. But the Persian kingdom, it's bigger than Assyria. It's bigger than Babylon. It's a big time kingdom. And Cyrus was a great conqueror. And God says, I did that. I form light and create darkness. Those are throughout scripture, right? Those are used for what we would call good things and bad things, good and evil, pleasant and unpleasant. You know, you want to be in the light. You don't want to be in the darkness. Darkness is gloom and it's destruction and it's judgment and all of that. God forms that. And then he says, I'm the one who causes well-being. This is the, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. And calamity. This is the word ra, which is evil. Now it's used just like we use the word bad uh, to des describe food. You know, that was bad food. <laughs> and then there's moral evil, moral bad kind of thing. Well, ra has the same broad spectrum. So it's not saying that God actually does what is wicked. But in this context... I think the NAS does a good job here. Calamity, I think some other translations say disaster. War, natural disasters, all the things that, that are destructive 
God says, I do that. Look, I am the Lord who does all these. Which raises the question. Will we take God at his word? This is sobering. And it's not the kind of thing that we should speak of flippantly and casually. But nor should we apologize for it. God doesn't apologize for it. What's happening in Ukraine right now? People have died. And more people will die. Did Vladimir Putin decide of his own free will to attack Ukraine? Yes. Did God decide that Putin would attack Ukraine? Yes. And all the destruction and death that comes with that. God's will is at work. Putin's will is at work. That's what he says. And again, we must not apologize for God's sovereignty. Now, I don't know. See, in this case, we know, uh, well, we're told throughout Isaiah, God is doing things. He's bringing nation against other nations because of their wickedness and their evil. Uh, you know, we can't say, oh, Ukraine is more wicked than other nations. That's why God is bringing this. Or maybe it turns out Ukraine is putting up a fight bigger than anybody expected. Maybe they win. Maybe, who knows what's going to happen, right, at the end of this? It could be that Russia suffers greatly. We can't look back and say, oh, well, obviously Russia is more evil than anybody else. That's why God destroyed them. Uh, the, that kind of thing is not within our knowledge base. So we have to be careful and not cross over and think we know what God is doing and why. But the point is, none of this happens by accident. God is sovereign over even those hard things. Uh, Tim has a statement here. What do you got, Tim? Could it be that people had different idols, gods in charge of different things, weather, cops, good times, bad times, and God is saying he owns it all? Uh, well, that's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, all the There were gods of regions, gods of nations, and then gods of specific um, natural spheres, maybe, like you're describing. Uh, and he is saying that he owns it all, but he's saying more than that. Not just that he owns it, but that he is working out what he wants in all of it. Is that is that different than what you're asking? Um, so he's not, he, he's the owner of it, but he's also the determiner of nations rising and falling. I mean, Cyrus is going to go across the world and he's going to slaughter a lot of people. And he is going to conquer. He's going to burn down cities. He's going to take captives. He's going to execute kings. He, he's going to do all the things that conquering kings do, which means people are going to die and possessions are going to be taken as spoil and booty and, and all kinds of suffering. And God is the one who's causing that. That's what he says. That's, that's the point. And this is hopeful. 
This is hopeful for the Jews. It's hopeful for us. And the, the response is to be this. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So the end result of this is going to be righteousness. And, and notice the terminology. Like rain coming down on the, on the earth is his righteousness coming down, his right action, his just action for everyone. No one gets unjustice or injustice. Everybody gets justice, the right thing. But there's another side, there's, there's redemption and rescue and salvation here. And so like the heavens are going to pour down righteousness. And now the, the appeal is for the earth to open up. Like if all the rain comes down on, on fertile ground, but it doesn't open up and receive the rain, if it closes up and doesn't allow the fertilization to take place, then nothing's going to grow. He's appealing now to the earth, open up and receive the rain, let the seed be fertilized, and bear fruit. And what is that fruit? Righteousness springing up. So it's all good what God is doing, but it is sobering as well as heartening to realize that King Jesus is on the throne reigning over everything that happens on planet Earth. So think about that as you head into the weekend. As you hear reports and stories of things going on all over the world, and some of them are hard, some of them are cause for mourning, right? We don't celebrate, we don't dance and sing when people lose their life or where there's wars, that kind of thing. We mourn with those who mourn. At the same time, we recognize that God is doing all of these things for the good of his people. And he's in control of it all. That's why we thank him and praise him for the good things and trust him that he's at work in the hard things. So with that, have a great weekend. God bless you. And Lord willing, we'll see you back here on Monday. Take care.